Pharmacist Podcast. I am your host, Adam Ballio. Americans spend over $30 billion on complementary and alternative medicine each year. As healthcare professionals, we need to know the facts. Let's find evidence-based medicine together. This podcast is not designed to be used for medical or legal advice. Thank you. Greetings and welcome to another exciting episode of the Integrated Pharmacist Podcast. Today, I'd like to talk to you about cell therapy. This modality involves the injection of healthy cells in order to promote healing in a sick patient. Western medicine has accepted this method at least to a small degree. Most people have heard of a bone marrow transplant. This is an example of cell therapy practiced in Western medicine. In its early days, cell therapy included injecting healthy mature cells specific to the injury site. For example, a heart patient might get healthy heart cells. This could be from a deceased human donor. The claim is that these cells would be injected and make their way to the heart and help the body rebuild heart cells. They found that the patient's immune system would react too often to the donated cells, as we learned from early organ transplantation procedures. Over time, the use of undeveloped cells like stem and mesenchymal cells became more popular because these cells don't have the proteins, sugars, and glycoproteins on their surface that signal to the immune system self versus non-self. Now, cell therapists use stem cells, much like a bone marrow transplant. The modern theory is that the stem cells injected into the deficient tissue or organ will help rebuild the tissue just the way our body would. Sometimes it is injected into the blood so the cells will find the right cells to rebuild. Our understanding of how this works is still evolving. It is currently understood that the stem cells do not build new organ cells directly. Instead, these cells help by reducing inflammation and by communicating through paracrine chemicals to the patient's existing cells. The existing cells appear to do the healing and regrowing expected from this treatment. To perform this therapy, the practitioner must acquire stem cells. Often they can use the patient's own bone marrow stem cells or adipose cells. These cells are treated in a solution to cause them to develop into the desired direction toward the kind of cells that need healing. However, the process is stopped before it is developed into a mature cell. This is to reduce the likelihood of rejection. Umbilical cord blood is another source of stem cells. Although these cells are theoretically generic enough for anyone to use, there are still concerns about matching and rejection. Ideally, patients will use cord blood saved from their own birth. Because of the scarcity of this kind of cell, most practitioners use bone marrow or adipose tissue mesenchymal cells. Although they are still precursor cells, studies involving these methods have been varied and contradictory. In bone marrow transplant, it would potentially be taken from the patient during a relatively healthy time and then re-injected into the patient. Or, a donor with similar blood can donate their bone marrow cells. Then the cells are injected into the sick patient. The cells find their way into the bone, where they take over the process of developing blood cells for the patient, just like their old bone marrow. This practice helps patients affected by serious injury, infection, or chemotherapy. This modality is used specifically to treat painful joints, whether that be due to arthritis, injury, or overexertion. It is also used for injured tendons, skin, bone, heart, lungs, and adrenals. People use it for hormone imbalances, erectile dysfunction, degenerative diseases, diabetes, and pains of every kind. 
It is advertised as an alternative to risky surgery. This modality is supported by a few trials I found. The first study I'd like to address uses stem cells from harvested umbilical cord blood from children born with cerebral palsy. This is a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover trial. It was originally designed to accept 120 children from 2 to 6 years old, but due to the slow process of finding young children with cerebral palsy who had their cord blood saved, they ended the trial after 63 participants. Although this looks like a significant setback, it was determined that they could still potentially reach significant numbers with this trial size. The children were also rather homogeneous, being mostly white two-year-old boys. This makes it difficult to extrapolate results to other groups. However, by having a crossover trial, each patient could act as their own comparison. However, by having a crossover trial, each patient could act as their own comparison. This helps to make the results stronger because differences seen in the treatment compared to placebo reflect what is happening within the same patients. It helps negate any differences between the study arms that may not have been accounted for. It also gets around the dilemma of giving one group a potentially life-altering medication and not the other. There were three legs of the trial. The placebo group got an injection designed to have the same color and smell as the cord blood injection. The second arm received a small dose of cord blood cells, and the third group received a large dose of cord blood cells. One year after the first dose of placebo or cord blood cells, each participant would then receive the opposite. Whether they received the small or large dose of cord blood was determined by the amount originally donated from each child at birth. Trained physicians and therapists measured motor skill and ability and analyzed changes in MRIs. They were measured before the first dose, one year post-first dose, which was when they were given the opposite treatment, and then again at the two-year mark. The children were also monitored throughout the study. It may be due to the low number of participants that improvements in the small-dose arm were undetectable. Although limited improvements were detected in the small-dose arm, clinically significant differences were found in the large-dose subjects in all measured outcomes. The trial conductors learned that not only does this method of therapy work for cerebral palsy, but there is a preferred dose of greater than 20 million cord blood cells. Though potentially underreported, side effects were minimal. The second trial I'd like to discuss built upon the use of umbilical cord cells in the treatment of osteoarthritis, which I'll refer to as OA. This is the primary aim of many cell therapy clinics. The trial looked at older patients with mild to moderate OA in a triple-blinded, placebo-controlled study. It had three arms as well. The placebo arm had a standard-of-care injection of hyaluronic acid at baseline and six months. Treatment 1 received one dose of cord blood stem cells and one dose of hyaluronic acid, and treatment 2 received two doses of cord blood stem cells. They used the same number of cells for the treatment arm as a previous trial I mentioned. The study had about 9 people per arm, which is quite low even compared to the other trials I've discussed so far. Despite this, the administrators were able to calculate statistics of safety and efficacy. According to this trial, the number needed to treat with umbilical cord cell therapy for OA is 2. That is, for every 2 patients who receive treatment, 1 will receive benefit of improved joint function and pain reduction. We should consider the fact that the study occurred in Chile, and has no mention of diversity of patients. This ratio may only hold true for this specific population. We don't have enough information to say otherwise. Also, the greatest efficacy was obtained in the arm that experienced two doses of cell therapy. By the way results came out, it appears as though multiple injections would be needed in order to maintain quality results. 
On the bright side, efficacy seems to increase with further dosing, unlike steroid injections, which tend to decrease in efficacy over time. There were also minimal and tolerable side effects from this treatment. Now let's look at the reality of this therapy. In order to receive this kind of therapy, you must go to a health center that specializes in this modality. It is typically not covered under insurance, so it is a cash-only service. The injection therapies that would be involved in the trials I covered today would cost around $5,000 each. I'd like to emphasize that the average patient would likely need multiple injections to see lasting results. That alone makes this modality quite prohibitive. Because the evidence is still growing in this direction, it is unadvised that patients seek this therapy. Even in the favorable odds provided by the second trial I mentioned, there is a 50% chance the patient will see no benefit after spending $5,000 or more. As a healthcare practitioner, I would advise patients to maintain standard practices for their disease states. For more information and referrals, you can visit the International Clinic of Biological Regeneration at www.icbr.com. I hope you have enjoyed learning about cell therapy as much as I have. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to reach out to me with questions, concerns, comments, or suggestions, please email me at integratedpharmacist at gmail.com. You can also read the blog at www.integratedpharmacist.blogspot.com. I have posted references to the trials there. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for another episode of the Integrated Pharmacist Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the Integrated Pharmacist Podcast. If you like what you heard, please give us a good rating, subscribe, and tell your friends. Thank you.